morning, everybody. Now let me start with a little review from last week since I see a lot of faces that we didn't have with us. Um, I come from a little bit different of a preaching tradition than we typically have here in Redeemer. And so I need, I crave your feedback. This is a two-way street up here. So if you've got an amen inside of you, I want to hear it this morning, uh, assuming that I say something worth amening. Uh, even if I'm just reading from scripture, that's appropriate to amen. And also, I introduced something last week that um, in the, the church that I pastored in Belarus, my African brothers and sisters introduced to me. Uh, I'll just get into it, and those of you who don't know it, you'll pick it up immediately. So, brothers and sisters, praise the Lord. Easy enough, right? Praise the Lord. So in case you haven't picked up, right? I say praise the Lord. You say uh, hallelujah, which means praise the Lord. And you put a hand up. You say it like you mean it, all right? Praise the Lord. We're getting there. All right. If throughout the service, uh, throughout the message, I happen to say praise the Lord, which I'll do if only to test you for nothing else, then you are to respond. There we go. All right. So if you've been paying attention, you know that this week is the last week of our Advent series through Isaiah. It's good that it's the last week because Christmas is in just a couple of days, right? And this week we end with joy. What a perfect ending note, right? I mean, joy is so central to the Christian life. We we know that joy is the fruit of the Spirit. We know that the joy of the Lord is our strength. We know that in God's presence there is fullness of joy. Jesus says, I have come to give you my joy and I want for your joy to be complete. And it's a command. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. We're to rejoice in sufferings. Rejoice in sorrows. Rejoice when we're slandered and persecuted. We're to rejoice in glory. We're to rejoice with the brothers. And you get the idea. We could go on and on. Joy is important, especially at Christmas. I mean... Listen to the songs that we just sang, every single one of them about joy. And we didn't even get into all of those wonderful minor key Christmas songs where we're singing about joy, but we're sounding really sad. It's impossible to write a Christmas song without joy. So we were created for joy. We long for joy. We need joy. So, brothers and sisters, rejoice. And I'm done. Thank you. Shortest sermon ever at Redeemer. Uh, Except that it's not that easy, is it? I mean, you you can know all of the reasons for rejoicing. You can know that you, you want to rejoice. You should rejoice. And yet, is that enough to manufacture joy in your heart? For me, it's not. For years, I've struggled with depression. Serious, dark depression. Joy does not come naturally to me. Every day, even when I'm not in a depressed state, I have a fight for joy. And so I, I know that I, I should be more joyful. I, I know that you should see more of my joy. And yet, I find myself feeling guilty over my lack of joy, over the fact that it's so easy to deflate my joy. Does any of this sound familiar to anybody here? I know I'm not the only one. We have to fight for our joy. And, and even if you're not like me and you feel depressed at times. Still, we need 
more joy with what we just sang about, with what we've read from the scriptures. There is no limit to the joy that we should be feeling. Now, I would love to come with seven secrets of the truly joyful life or five steps to more joy. But I just confess to you that I suffer from depression. How likely is it that I've got some secret? Instead, we're going to turn to some real experts in joy. We're going back to the book of Isaiah, this time reading from chapter 12. Here we see a song of boundless joy. As we read through it, we get the picture that the, the singers just can't help themselves but rejoice. This song that we're going to read is the conclusion, the capping of the first section of Isaiah. The first 12 chapters form a pretty cohesive unit. And as we learned last week, the situation in Israel at the time, or rather in Judah, was pretty serious. Judah was weakened economically, militarily, and just to the north, Israel and Syria formed an alliance against her. They were threatening to swoop down and to end the kingdom of Judah. So God comes to the, the Jews and he pleads with them through his prophet. He, he comes especially to King Ahaz and says, I will save you. I will protect you. Just trust in me. But they didn't. Instead, Ahaz turned to the wicked Assyrians. He put his hope in these horrible, brutal people instead of in the God who promised to deliver them. So God promises to bring judgment. But the glorious thing we saw last week was even before the people were ready to repent, God was preparing salvation. This wouldn't just be military salvation. No, we read God himself would come down, take on flesh, and be their king. This week, the story will continue. So read with me from Isaiah chapter 12. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Even from just this initial glance, we can see that these singers are full of the kind of joy that you and I long for. But who are these singers? And what is the occasion for such joy? Well, to get the answers to those questions, we have to turn back a page. So turn with me, if you will, to chapter 11. This is one of the most magnificent prophecies in all of scripture about the coming of the Messiah, King Jesus. We start off in the first verses reading about a shoot from the stump of Jesse. This is a prophecy about the fact that the Davidic kingship, the Davidic dynasty would be utterly cut off. There would be no descendant of David to sit on the throne. And yet where people looked and they saw no life, God would bring forth a new shoot 
This shoot is the Messiah. This is Jesus. Jesus would come and he would sit on the throne. And in verse 2 we see, The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, the fear of the Lord. Oh, and we shall see what kind of king he will be. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord, not like King Ahaz, who feared man. No, instead, this king would rule with justice, would rule with righteousness, so that the poor, the poor received the justice that was due to them, and the wicked would be judged. In verse 6, we start to see a picture of the wonderful nature of his kingly rule. It's amazing, some of these beautiful pictures that are painted. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard with the young goat, the calf and the lion lying together, all in harmony. And the most incredible, we get in verse 8, the nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra. Why is that the most incredible, you ask? Think back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve fall into sin because of the temptation of the serpent. And so God curses not only Adam and Eve, but the serpent as well. And the promise, the promise is that there will be enmity between your offspring, the offspring of the serpent, and the offspring of the woman. But here, where is that enmity? Where, where is the enemy? No, the curse has been reversed. When this king is seated on the throne, the curse of the fall will be wiped away. He's come to make his blessings known. You can fill in the blank, right? I had originally planned to sing that, but it's better that I leave that be. Far as the curse is found, Verse 9 is a summary statement. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. When this king comes, harmony will reign because all the earth will know who is king. Oh, he truly is the Prince of Peace. Amen? Then in verses 10 and 11, we get beautiful imagery from warfare. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a signal, a banner for all the peoples. In ancient warfare, every army would have their banner, their signal, this flag that the army would flock to, rally to in the midst of battle. Jesus is that banner. His people will flock to him. We re remember the words of John 12, where Jesus says, when I am lifted up, all the peoples on the earth will come to me. And so we see it. Jesus, the Messiah, leading a new exodus as the remnant of God's people, and all of the nations will flock to him as he leads them out of the oppression of sin and darkness and into God's kingdom. That the exodus is in view is clear from the last words of this chapter. There will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Well, after the first exodus, after the people of Israel crossed through the sea, the army of the Pharaoh was crushed. Do you remember what they did immediately afterwards? They gathered by the seashore and they sang and they rejoiced and they danced all day long. That is what chapter 12 is. It is the rejoicing of the people of God after this second exodus. So what is the day that we're looking at? Well, Isaiah has uh, this propensity, as do most prophets, to squish together the two comings of Jesus into one great day of the Messiah. 
This is the day of the Messiah. This is the day when King Jesus will sit on the throne. This is the day when God's people will cease trusting in themselves and will instead trust in the one who promises to care for them. So when it says here, in that day, it's in our day. And it's in the days to come when the knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. So who are the singers here? It's the redeemed. This is the song of the redeemed. This is the song of those who have put their trust in the Messiah. My friends, this is our song. Or it should be. And with this, I think we see our first truth about joy. The joy of these singers is not based on something that is fleeting, something that is passing, like, like the Christmas gifts or the family gatherings that we're about to enjoy. No, that kind of happiness will pass by just as soon as January's credit card bill comes. No, no, no. Our joy is based on something that will never be shaken or never be taken away. Our subjective experience of joy is based on the objective reality that Jesus sits upon the throne. Never again will he pass from that throne. His kingdom will grow until it fills the earth as the waters fill the seas. That, my friends, is the basis for all joy that we have. I wish that... Uh, that, that last song we sang would have been printed in the bulletin. I wanted to read that first verse again. It was all about the rejoicing that we have because Jesus reigns. Rejoice, my friends. Jesus sits upon the throne. So now as we turn to the song itself, and don't worry, this is kind of the longer part of the sermon. We're not going to be here forever we see, you will say in that day. It's important to note that in verse 1, this you is singular. Later on, he's going to switch to the plural, y'all. But here it's you, singular, will say in that day. What follows is the profession of each and every one of God's redeemed people. So what we are reading is to be what we declare to the Lord and to the world. Look at what we declare. I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For what? For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. The first thing that comes out of this singer's mouth is thanksgiving for the mercy and forgiveness shown by the Lord. Now, this is absolutely essential for our joy. Initially, in the context of Isaiah, this thankfulness was for God turning his wrath away from the nation of Israel so that he might comfort her by his coming. But the implications here, the gospel message that is contained in this verse, stretches far beyond just the nation of Israel. Follow the logic that's at play here. Though you, God, were angry with me, the singer recognizes that God is angry and rightfully angry. He is angry not with this world that is fallen and dark. He's angry not with, oh, some of my misgivings, my misjudgments. He is angry not with all of humanity. No, God is angry with me. God is rightfully, justly angry with me. With, with what I have done. Because you see, day after day, I have refused to trust in him for his provision. I have refused to honor him as king. I have turned my back on the greatest treasure that this world has ever seen, to walk and pursue after 
garbage. God is angry with me because I have failed to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I haven't even wanted to. God is angry with me because I have failed to love my neighbor as myself and instead have exalted myself up to the level of God. Yes, my friends, the God of the universe, the Almighty, is rightfully, justly angry at me. His fury is poured out upon me. And until that truth sinks down into our very souls, we will never have the joy that we're supposed to have. All true joy must flow through this, that God should destroy me eternally in the fires of hell. But praise the Lord. Thank you, Miss Tony. He doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop that God was angry with me. That is not the gospel. God was angry with me. That's past tense. But his anger has turned from me. Not because I've gotten it all together. Not because I've figured out what I can do to finally please the Lord. No, his anger has turned from me and turned onto another. Isaiah is not explicit about where this anger goes. Not in this section, but a little later on, Isaiah chapter 55. I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is unbelievable news. God was rightfully angry with me, but now he has turned that anger aside to his beloved son, to the Messiah, to the king that would sit upon the throne. He was wounded for my transgressions. God doesn't just forgive and forget. He doesn't just cast aside anger. It's got to go somewhere or else it's not worth anything. Or else the holiness of God is trampled underfoot. But God took it upon himself. And now, those hands that should be destroying us. Look at verse 1. Comfort us. I, I should have God destroying me. But he's comforting me. I should have him as tormentor and enemy. But instead... I have him as comforter and friend. That is joy. That is joy. And that's also the cause of most of our joylessness. How's that, you say? So easily we forget. Or we take it for granted. Or, or heaven forbid, we depersonalize it. We start to think, well, that doesn't really apply to me anymore. But my friends, don't you know that, that even now what you say, what you do, what you think, it calls down the just wrath of God upon your sins? But Jesus Christ, even now, is your deliverer. The wrath that you should be bearing, he bore on the tree. Oh, praise the Lord. That is joy. Remember that. Preach that gospel to yourself day after day. 
Let that joy sweep over you today. Let it renew you once again. God was angry with you. But his anger turned from you onto his son so that he might comfort you. Now, if that's your confession, doesn't verse 2 flow so naturally? Behold, God is my salvation. Notice here, he doesn't say, God brings me salvation. God is my salvation. Because from first to last, God is salvation. He is He's the initiator of salvation. He's the one who thought it up. And he's the finisher of salvation. He is its cause. He is its means. He's its agent. But even more, God is the aim. He is the end of salvation. You and I, we're saved from the wrath of God that we might have God from first to last and everywhere in between. God is salvation. That is joy. And because of that, I will trust and not be afraid. Easier said than done, right? Yes, I'm going to trust him. I'm not going to be afraid. We hearken back to Israel, Judah with King Ahaz. God came and begged and said, do not fear, trust in me. But Ahaz's fear of man was so great that even the Lord's assurances weren't enough. And he ran, trusted in his own wits and in the power of Assyria. You know, this week I was thinking through this and thought to myself initially, you know, Dan, you're doing pretty, pretty good at this. I mean, you're not really afraid of anything. And then I realized that worry, that's just another word for fear, isn't it? Stress, well, what is that if it's not fear? So as I worry, what job am I going to find? How am I going to make ends meet financially? As I stress over deadlines in school or or, uh, with ministry, what I'm doing is I'm not trusting God. And I'm fearing for the future. And there is no greater joy thief than fear and lack of trust. It's really hard to rejoice when you are worrying about what is going to come tomorrow. Isn't that right? My friends, what are you worried about today? What are you concerned with? Where are your stresses? It's too simplistic to just say, well, let go and let God, trust in him. But what we see is that God is our salvation. That's salvation from more than just sin, more than just the wrath of God. In everything, God is our salvation. I thought in reading through this of Romans 8.32, where it's written, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is an argument from the the greatest to the least, right? God has given his most precious, his dearest son, Jesus. Do you think that he's going to all of a sudden go cheap on you and and fail to give you anything else that you might need? Trust in the God of your salvation and revel in the joy that comes from life without fear. The person that knows God as trust, as salvation, the person who is not afraid because of that will know God as his strength and his song 
No longer will the people of God, as in Ahaz's day, flee to other nations, flee to other peoples for their strength. Instead, they will call upon the Lord and find that he is more than sufficient for the task. My friends, I find that from my own heart, there is nothing like a crisis to determine where I go for my strength. When you have no idea what to do next, where do you turn? My natural inclination is to just start thinking really hard, to start planning out. Oh, but God, God is my strength. And there is no greater joy than trusting in the Lord for strength and finding that he is able to provide more than you need. Those of us who know that God is our strength, we will also know him as our song. The joy of the Lord wells up within us and comes flowing forth in this exuberant expression. So, in these personal confession verses, verses 1 and 2, we see the good news that God has been angry with us, but he's turned that wrath aside onto his son. Now we know him as salvation. We can trust him and not be afraid. And we know him as our strength and song. Now, if you are the type to highlight in your Bible, break out that highlighter right now. If not, grab some writing implement and a sheet of paper and write these words separately. I'm really glad that I see a couple of you actually doing that. I, I would love it if you would all do that. Those of you who have to take a kid's colored pencil, do it. Verse 3 is that valuable. These words deserve your memorization. It has been of such value to me in my own fight for joy, and I trust that it will be the same for you. With joy, you will, dwell, uh, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Isaiah once again looks back to the Exodus, where in the desert, God's people were wandering about without water, and God produced wells in the desert. And then again, he produced water from a rock. He's also looking ahead to Jesus. Not too long ago, Brett preached to us from, from John chapter 7, where we heard Jesus say, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Only in this passage, look at it. It's not out of the heart of the believer that the water is flowing. Instead, believers, for the you here is plural, believers come to these wells of salvation and they draw water. Now, what are these wells? And what does it mean to drink from the well of salvation? As is often the case, our best friend in interpretation is the immediate context. Remember, in, in verse 2, we just saw, God is my salvation. So we have wells of salvation. God is my salvation. These wells of salvation are the places, are the times when we can come and drink deeply of God. God offers himself to us freely that we may partake, that we may quench our thirst. And believe me, thirsty we are. Because although we know the presence of Christ, although we know the good news of the gospel, this world is a dry and weary land. We are still burdened by sin. We're beset by our own doubts and our fears. We, we're let down by, by our friends and our loved ones. People die. We need refreshment. Refreshment. 
And God graciously offers himself to us. We can come, we can meet with the Lord, we can fill ourselves with him, with his strength and with his joy through prayer and the word and worship. I have found this to be the greatest key to my own battle for joy. If I'm joyless, chances are it means that I haven't drunk deeply from the well and too long. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, day by day, every single day, I, I have time reading the scripture. I have time in prayer. But usually it's somewhat surface level, distracted. It's not enough of an interaction with the divine for me to really gather strength that I need to walk on. Now, I don't want to turn this into something mystical, right? But I think we all know the truth of this. There are times of prayer where, you know, you're basically speaking words into the air absentmindedly. I, I don't see any nodding heads. Okay, maybe that's just a confession from me. I have times of prayer where I seem to just be speaking words emptily. There's, there's nothing really coming out of my heart. There's no connection with God. And then there are times of prayer. Now I'm seeing the heads bob up and down. That's good. The room seems to shake. As you pour out your thoughts and your feelings to the Lord, you yourself are being shaped. You are filled with that joy, with awe, with wonder. There are times of reading the word where, let's face it, 20 minutes later, you have no idea what you just read. And then there are times when you understand what the psalmist is saying when he says, Lord, your word is sweeter than the honeycomb. When every single phrase jumps off the page, and you just want to scream, yes, yes, until you realize that you're alone and everybody would think you're kind of strange. Those are the times that fill you. That is the kind of drinking that we need to walk on with joy. Now, don't expect that every day, that every prayer is going to carry that sort of power. But don't settle for less either. Strive for God. Seek after more of him. Beg him that when you sit there and read the scriptures, it wouldn't be empty scanning the pages, but it would be true, deep interaction with him. Beg as Moses did, show me your glory. And watch as he does it. We all need to drink deeply from the wells of salvation. And look at this wondrous truth. Verse 6, God uh, tells, or the, the singer says, Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. The God who saves is always available for his people. So let's make full use of that. Let us go to these wells again and again. In this holiday season, my best practical advice for you Schedules are going to get all sorts of messed up. Family, friends are going to be in your homes. It's going to seem like there's always somebody around. Do what it takes to steal away, to isolate yourselves. Find those moments when you can drink deeply. This is one occasion where a good stiff drink will actually help to prevent family drama. Can I get some amens from over here? There we go. All right. Imagine that, a Baptist seminarian advising you to go and drink deeply. All right. Well, there's one final piece of the puzzle that we have to unlock here. It's by far our shortest, but uh, verses 4 and 5, we see an aspect of joy that we don't typically touch on. In verse 4, again, we say, see, you will say in that day, 
And this time, it is y'all. Y'all will say in that day. This is the community. And look at what the community says to itself, to each other. Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Now, do you notice a common denominator here? In every single one of these commands that the community is shouting to itself, there is an aspect of telling, of speaking forth of the greatness of God. Now, the first group is directed towards God. We see, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, sing praises to the Lord. When the community of God gathers together, there is a communal joy that is unsurpassed here on this earth. It's a little foretaste of heaven. And so the community calls one to another saying, come, let us all together gather to call upon his name, to give him the praise that he's due, to thank him for all that he's done. Have you ever experienced that joy? I had it just this morning. I, I don't say it often enough, but Gary, thank you. Uh, I like to tease him a little too much, but doesn't he do us a, a great service in leading in joyful proclamation that the Lord has done great things? Often I'm tempted to think that if I'm not preaching or teaching Sunday school or something like that, I'm not really contributing to the worship. But my friends, that couldn't be more wrong. As you come, as I come, and we joyfully join in with the masses to proclaim the greatness of the Lord, here, back to God, we are each contributing to one another, to our communal joy. Without you coming with joy in your heart, without your singing of thankfulness to God, my joy is lessened. I need you. And so we see these people calling forth to each other. Don't just come to worship. Don't come dragging your heels. Be ready. Come with joy to proclaim that our God is great. Redeemer, I have left these halls, these walls, so many times with a renewed vigor, with a renewed skip in my step, because your joy has infected me. Let us excel in that all the more. Amen? Amen. But the second group, the second group deals with speaking forth the glory of the Lord to those outside the community. Now, I don't think this should come as a great surprise because joy demands to be shared. It is the response to joy, and it actually heightens our joy when we share it with others. Let me illustrate. Do we have any Dallas Cowboy fans in here? I'm sorry, folks. You probably know nothing of joy. But football fans, would you rather watch a game by yourselves or with a group of people? With a group of people, right? Why? Because when that great play happens, you want to hop up and slap somebody five. And when you do that by yourself, you look really silly, don't you? When you're yelling at the TV, it only makes sense that somebody should hear you because you want to share the wonder that you see. How did Tony Romo throw another interception? <laughs> the cowboy jokes end now. Those of you who aren't football fans, comedies, are they funnier when you're by yourself or with your family? Most of us don't laugh very loud uh, when we're just alone in a room, do we? But when we're together, because joy demands 
to be shared. So when we know the joy of Jesus, it cries out, share me with others. Spread that joy outside. I know for myself, there is no shot in the arm for my joy like when I go and share the gospel with someone who has never known of Jesus. But here, it's not talking about my individual sharing. This is community. This is talking about us together, the people of God together, proclaiming the greatness of the Lord. It's wonderful that as individuals, as families, we scatter that we send missionaries across the country and to the nations. I, I hope to be one of those soon. But we also must declare as one body to the nations that surround us. Just this week, I was talking with a Chinese exchange student. He's only been in the country like two months. He hardly had the vocabulary to express what had happened to him. But he came to faith not long after arriving in America. An American church adopted him, just pulled him in. And in their unity and in their love, he saw Jesus. With this comes great joy for the community. My friends, think of the joy that we will have in our care groups when we open up and draw into ourselves an immigrant family or a single mother and we just shower the love of Jesus upon them. That'll draw us closer together and it will give us much more reason for rejoicing. Think of the joy that we will have here if as a church we just declare in this next year we are going to make the gospel known to all the houses that surround Redeemer, to this neighborhood that is around us. Think of the joy that we will have as we go out in groups to prayer walk around here or, or to do service opportunities or, or just to meet people and share the gospel with them. Just imagine the joy that will explode from these walls if week after week, we see in the baptistry new brothers and sisters in Christ who are declaring for the first time, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away from me, that you might comfort me. That's the kind of joy that I could get used to seeing here. But first, we have to proclaim. First, as a body, we need to go. As we approach the new year and the reorganization of our care groups, let's think creatively. What can we do, not just as individuals, but as a church, to proclaim his word to the nations that are all around us? So, my friends, let us be people of joy. Let us fight for joy. Let us seek for joy. Because we are the community of the redeemed. We are the ones with the testimony that God was angry with us, but his anger has turned from us, that he could comfort us. We know God to be salvation and strength and song. We know we can trust him and not be afraid. Oh, and friends, let us be the people who call to one another. Let's go and worship the Lord with joy. Let us seek him in prayer with joy. Let's magnify our joy by proclaiming together to the nations. Let us drink deeply from the wells of salvation. An English friend of mine tells the story how he was passing through Heathrow Airport in London, one of the busiest airports in the world. And as he walked into the restroom, he saw two African men 
bowing down on the floor, scrubbing. Now, African immigrants in England are typically very highly educated. Just to be able to get in the country, probably they were doctors or lawyers or professors in their homeland. And now these men, the only jobs they could get, are forced to scrub in front of urinals in one of the busiest airports in the world. But as my friend walked up, he heard one of these African men singing. He wasn't close enough to make out what the song was, but as he came closer, he saw one turn to the other with a great smile on his face and say, my friend, you simply have to come with me to church this Sunday to see the joy that my Jesus gives to us. <laughs> I want to go to that church. <laughs> and I want us to be the kind of people who are so full of the joy of the Lord that it doesn't matter what we're up to our knees in. We can still shine that joy of Jesus forth. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, fill us with your joy. Let us know your joy. Thank you for all that you have done to secure our joy. Renew us in this day, we pray, O oh Lord. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you for this family of faith that can reignite us when we lag. Let us celebrate now, Lord, with joy the coming of your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.